Augustine of Hippo, if you don't know where Hippo is, it's in North Africa. St. Augustine was African. Augustine of Hippo is one of the most beloved and influential theologians in in the church's history. For well over a thousand years, Protestants and Catholics alike have poured over his works, including the City of God, on the Trinity, and on Christian doctrine. These are some of his main works. And in many ways, Augustine proved to be the theological powerhouse that God has used to shape gospel centeredness as we know it today. What does it mean to be central on the gospel, to be centered on the gospel? Well, Augustine shows us what that's like in a lot of his works. However, for me, the, the work that has been the most impactful is his confessions. It's what's formed me the most in any of his writings. In his confessions, Augustine writes a type of autobiography to the Lord, confessing his sins publicly, just laying out some of the worst things about himself, in particular, his struggle with sex. Throughout his life, sexual temptation held enormous sway over Augustine's heart and mind. He knew it was wrong. He wanted to stop. And yet he freely admits that his own desires were too strong for him. No matter what he tried, he could not escape this tendency to fall into sexual temptation. Resolve was not, not enough. There were times that he just simply said, I'm not going to do it anymore. And yet he would still do it. Grit was not enough where he would just kind of aesthetically try to force himself into obedience. Wouldn't work. Even his love for God's word failed him. He writes, it did me no good to be delighted with your law. According to the person I was within, when in my own body, a different law was at war with my spirit's law and led me off as a captive under the law of sin, the one in my body. The law of sin is the lawless force of habit by which even the unwilling mind is dragged and confined. And this is justified in that the mind willingly fell into the habit. Now maybe you're like Augustine today and you have felt helpless as sin drags you away, right? You try as you might, the habit of sin just overpowers you. You, you do everything you possibly can and yet you, you find yourself still pulled back into it. The reality is, is that sin is strong. We know that. And one of the things that we tend to fail to confess is that we are weak. We are not as strong as sin. In the tug of war, we tend to lose. Whether it be sex, lust, anger, anxiety, gossip, backbiting, prideful power mongering, elitism, prejudice, judgmentalism, being overly critical, or whatever our vice may be, our tendency is for sin to find a way to manifest itself in life. For example, a person can resolve not to be angry, right? They can even adopt a few new breathing techniques. Uh, someone just tells you, you know, I just, I just tend to fly off the handle, right? They, they buy uh, how to stop losing uh, your temper for dummies. And they, they realize chapter one says, it's breathing techniques. Take deep breaths before you speak, Right? Just force yourself not to be angry. And yet the first moment something goes wrong, what happens? Ah, Fly off the handle, right? How many of you have ever had that experience? 
Okay, okay. Guys, we're a gospel-centered church, which means we are some of the most honest people to an awkward point, right? We are all sinners in the room, right? Can we all agree? Everybody says? Okay, there we go. So we're all sinners. So raise your hands once in a while, right? And many are sinners, right? Okay. I won't raise mine because we all know I'm above that, but... (laughs) Or think about the struggle with sexual temptation. Things like pornography, right? How many people have you known, or maybe it's you yourself, that you've, you've struggled with this particular vice for years and years and years, and nothing seems to help you? You engage with covenant eyes, you install it on your phone, uh, you engage with accountability partners, and sometimes it feels like you're getting with your accountability partners and you're just like, I did it again. It sounds like you're singing a Britney Spears song, whoops, I did it again, whoops, I did it again, over and over and over again. Because it doesn't seem like you can get out of the temptation, right? It's just you lose the tug of war every single time. You get the covenant eyes. And for a while, yes, you live free from those images and free from those videos and free from those chat rooms. But then eventually the Instagram reels, the Facebook feeds or the online pop-ups, or maybe it's just you know a billboard that you drive by an I-35 and suddenly you're off to the races of sexual temptation again. We read about meekness. Would everybody agree meekness is a good thing? Meekness is a good thing, isn't it? Jesus said, blessed is the meek, right? What is meekness? Meekness, I think, meekness is strength under control, right? So when somebody's strong and they know they're strong, they're powerful, and they know they're powerful, they know they have this tendency to overpower or overstrengthen people, meekness is when they allow the Lord to strengthen them. It's like black beauty with a bridle on, right? The black stallion by itself is wild and uncontrollable, but a meek person has a bridle in its mouth and the Lord is on the saddle. Okay? So that's the difference between a meek and unmeek person. We read about it. We know that's good. We know that we should be meek. We commit not to overpower others, right? And so, and so we, we tell ourselves, okay, I'm not going to engage in pointless debates to show myself as intellectually superior today. Okay? Or I'm not going to make other people feel stupid today. I'm not going to play tug-of-war games with popularity and influence. But then comes Bobby Joe, right? He comes in with his know-it-all-ism, and he comes in making these claims, and suddenly we start feeling threatened by his influence. Or we have Sarah coming in, being more influential than us. Other people listen to her more. They want to be friends with her more. Or we, we see somebody else having popularity or more authority. They say something and people just snatch onto it and live by it. And suddenly we're off to the race again. And this prideful competition and prideful power mongering begins. Where now we're at war with somebody else. Even though we strove to be meek, we just lost the tug of war to our own prideful power mongering. Has, has, am I the only one up here just being as transparently as possible to say that I tend to lose the tug of war? By myself? Like, okay, I'm not alone. Okay, good, thank you. I was about to have to resign there for a second. (laughs) If we're honest, we are left with the desperate truth that we are helpless in and of ourselves against sin. Looking at ourselves, we, like Augustine, should be left asking this question. Who is going to set my wretched self free from the body that was death? You see, Augustine knew what it was like to have these 
temptations and to be drawn in and to lose almost every single time to the point that he's exasperated of himself and realizes who is going to set me free? Not You realize he stops asking the question, what can I do to get out of this? And he starts asking the question, who is going to set me free? So where do you turn when you feel the strong pull of sin? What hope do you have of ever depriving sin of victory in, it, in your life? If your answer is, I just am, just, am going to try harder, I'm going to do better, you're going to realize really quickly that's not a sufficient answer. My, my office is full of different pastoral meetings where I can tell you over and over again, trying harder and doing better renders no good results. It just doesn't happen. But in that, we don't need to be left in our despair. There is hope. The good news of the gospel is that God can do what we ourselves and what the law cannot do. Let's finish Augustine's quote. Who is going to set my wretched self free from the body that was death? Unless your grace through our master, Jesus Christ, could do it. So I've got a twofold goal here. I want you to despair of yourself. Goal number one is that you'll just despair of yourself. You're right, wretched people that we are. We are helplessly lost in sin. We are broken and captured and taken captive. And even the moments that we don't think are sin are still mingled with sin. Even those moments that we think we're being humble, we're being prideful about how humble we actually are. Even in our best moments, we are sinners. So despair of yourself, but find hope and peace and victory in God's Spirit who can do what you cannot do. This is exactly Paul's point in Romans 8. We are wretched men and women, sinful. We are left asking, who will deliver me from this body of sin? But as we look to the gospel, we find the answer in Jesus Christ and in his spirit, who can deliver those who depend on him to deliver them from their sin. Now, given how easily sin draws us into ourselves, Brandon gave an amazing sermon last week where he drew out that tension, right? We do the things we don't want to do, and the things that we know we should do and want to do, we end up not doing. So we either, we either sin uh, by just sheer neglect and not doing the things that we should, or we, sin, uh, we call that sin by omission, or we sin by commission, by directly sinning, just knowingly going into sin. So we live in this tension to where even we, we, we can't, we just seem to have the inability to do, to not do the things that we know we should do. So it would seem like there's nothing but despair. But when we get into Romans 8, we find the hope. Despite our weakness uh, towards sin, Paul tells us there is good news. And I want you just to hear this, because Paul's going to settle something right here and right now. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It gets a little more complex in its message. So I'm not, I, if you're going to tune me out after what I'm about to say, there's a whole, I, I don't know what, 40 minutes left <laughs> to try to prove what what I'm about to say in, in a more complex way. But just if you're so bold and so transparent, if you have fallen prey to sin again this week, will you just raise your hand for a moment? Okay. Can I just tell all of you that raised your hands? Let me just read this again. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you condemned for the sins that you did this week? Paul's answer is, no, Jesus died for that. You're in Christ. There is now no condemnation. It's a surprising claim, right? After he just went into this big tension about our ongoing struggle with sinful desires, we would half expect him to tell us, you're all doomed. You're hopeless. You're helpless people. You're sinful. Even as great as you think you are, you're sinful. You would think he would just say, you're doomed. But instead he tells us the good news that in Christ, we no longer face condemnation. We've been set free from God's wrath. There's not condemnation for sin for those who belong in Jesus Christ. Now at this point we're left asking, but Paul, did you not just hear yourself say that we are prone to sin? Did, I, I, like you, when we want to do what's right, Evil lies close at hand. Like you, we are wretched people who are taken captive by sin. What do you mean there is now no condemnation? That's the exact opposite of what we deserve. And Paul says, precisely. That's the point. You are helplessly sinful. You lose the tug of war. You lose, you, you, in this war with sin, you do not win by yourselves. But in Christ, there is now no condemnation. What we are, which is sinners, and what we have received in Christ, which is freedom from uh, condemnation, do not correspond. It doesn't make sense, does it? Here's who we are. Here's what we get. We are sinful. We get no condemnation in Christ. How amazing is that? And that's just the beauty and the good news of the gospel. Because in and of ourselves, we deserve something different. But because God is good, because God is loving, because God is kind, we get something we do not deserve. And every Christian who truly believes the gospel understands that they have not gotten what they have earned. That freedom from condemnation was a gift, the exact opposite of what you deserve. That's the beauty of the gospel. Now, there's all kinds of questions with that. How is it that sinners like us are free from condemnation? We've talked about this in the past. If God just sweeps our sins under the rug, that's not justice. If God just pretends that we're not sinful, that's not justice. God has to do something about our sin if we're to be truly free from his condemnation and he be just. You see, the the problem in Scripture is not... Why doesn't God save everybody? The main problem in salvation is how could a just God save anybody? And so that's the problem that we're facing in Romans. Paul explains how we can be free from condemnation and God be just. Here's what he says. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So we have freedom from condemnation. Why? Because the law of the spirit has set us free. Now, what is the law of the spirit of life? 
Paul seems to be using terms in a very complex way here, and so it's important to define them. The word law here can mean something like binding authority or power, right? So to be under the law of sin and death means to be under the binding power or binding authority of sin and death, to be subject to it, to have to obey it. However, we're no longer bound under the power of the authority of sin. We are no longer, it's, 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 captives, it's servants, it's not our master anymore. The power of sin has brought death, but we have this new master, this new law, right? This new binding authority known as God's spirit. And in place of the death we once received, we have life and peace. So the contrast between a person who is living in the power of sin and the law of sin and a person who's living according to the law of the spirit or or under the power of the Spirit. This is going to be the crux of Paul's point in this entire passage. This is comparison between law of sin and flesh and death and law of spirit and life and peace. Either a person lives under the power of sin and dies, or the person lives in the freedom that has been gained in the power of the Spirit and lives. Paul argues that in Christ, the power of the Spirit has delivered us from the power of sin and death. We are no longer bound by the law of sin and death to obey its authority. And so just the the real point here, as Romans 7 says, the struggle's real, right? The struggle with sin is very real. But so is the freedom that we've been given in Christ. It's even more real. Struggle's real. We're going to fight sin. We're going to lose to sin. We're going to have this tug of war with sin. We're going to fall prey to sin. But there's also a very real freedom that we don't have to fall prey to sin. There is victory over sin because of the freedom that has been gained in Christ. And that's the hope. It's not in you. It's in the Spirit. It's not in you. It's in Christ. It's in God. Not in you. That's his point over and over again. How did we receive such amazing freedom? How is it that we no longer have to live under the power of sin and death? Paul points to the triune God. The law of the Spirit has set us free because of God, what God has done. And what has God done? God did what the law could not do by sending his Son. Freedom from sin does not come from the things we do, but from what God has done. He's already made the point over and over again that no one keeps the law that the law cannot make anyone righteous. If you come to the law, what's going to happen? You're only going to be proven to be sinful over and over again. You come to the law, shall not have any other gods before me, and guess what's going to be proven? You have other gods before God all the time. You come to the law, you will be spotlighted, highlighted as a sinner par excellence. The law points out sin. It cannot make righteousness. It points out, it proves unrighteousness. So the more that we bring regulations and rules and holy guides to the table, whatever it is, these standards are just going to prove that we fall short. For anyone struggling with self-righteousness, Paul wants you to not go that direction anymore. Don't go to the law. You will not find righteousness there. The law will only show you to be sinful. Go to the law if you need proof that you are sinful. Don't go to the law for salvation. Don't go to the law for righteousness. And see, that's that's the thing that we tend to mix up all the time. 
For some reason, we believe that we have been saved by grace, but now we live by law. That's not, that's not the, the paradigm of salvation that God has given us. That's not the way that he has given it. If we come to the law, even now as believers, if we come to the law, we'll be proven to be sinful because the law highlights sin. However, God has done what the law cannot do. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Now this description of the son deserves some explanation. By saying that Jesus has come in the likeness of sinful flesh, Paul is not saying that Jesus came as a sinner. Okay, so likeness of sinful flesh doesn't mean that he's a sinner. Okay, it simply means that he's become a full participant in our humanity. Think about all the times you just became hungry and tired and thirsty and sorrowful and even his ability to feel pain. In his human nature, Jesus experienced all the things sinful humanity experiences. And taking on flesh, he was fully aligned with you and I. If we think that he was some kind of superhuman with some super flesh and super strength and had super able, like his eyes just could never dart to anything evil. If we think that he had that kind of flesh, no, he took on the same flesh that you have, came in the likeness of sinful flesh for what? For sin. In other words, he came as a human to become the offering for human sin. The son came in the flesh. And then what did God do? God condemned sin in his son's flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Now scholars debate what righteous requirement means. Does it mean that Jesus met the law's righteous requirements on the cross, that he died and now the law has been fulfilled and now we're good? Or does it mean that because of what Jesus did, believers are now able to live according to the law according to its righteous requirements. Well, I think the words might be fulfilled in us seem to suggest it's referring to our obedience. As true as it is that Jesus fulfilled the law on the cross, as true as it is that Jesus uh, forgave every sin that we've ever done on the cross, it seems to be tapping into something changing inside of us. I think it taps into the Old Testament hope of Ezekiel 36. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my words. Before we couldn't obey, now we can. What happened? Well, the spirit was poured into us, right? God put his spirit within his people. How was the spirit poured out? Only after the death of Jesus. Only after Christ's blood justified us. So we had the justification that now made us a holy inhabitation for God himself. When Jesus' blood cleansed us from the guilt within, it was now inhabitable for the Spirit to be poured out. And now that the Spirit's been given, we are now able to meet the righteous requirement of the law in us. Not by ourselves, but because of the Spirit because God condemned sin in, his, in Jesus' flesh, we can now do the things that the law requires. Again, this is not by ourselves or in ourselves or what we do. It's because of what the Spirit does. Because of our justification, we have the Spirit, right? Spirit wrought righteousness. And because of the Spirit, now we're able to live in that Spirit wrought righteousness as we uh, live and obey God. Now to sum up, no condemnation. Why? Jesus died 
spirit was given, and now you're free from condemnation. He was condemned. You're not condemned. He was condemned. There is now no more condemnation. Now, in the middle of all this is a spirit working and living inside of us so that we can live according to the law, live according to God's righteous requirements, his commands. Now, why is this so important? Well, I think it's important because it tells us that we're free from guilt and judgment. So for those of you that are in sin, you're deep in sin, and you just feel like you've been alienated from God, and there's no way, there's no redeeming you. You've been, you've, you've sinned, you've been damned, you're, you're, you're condemnable. Let Paul's message say, there is now no condemnation. You are not alienated from God. Your days of alienation from God are over. The wall's been broken, the curtain's been torn, Right? If no height, no depth, no principalities, no powers, no nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing you do can separate you from God's love. There is now no condemnation. So this idea of you must punish yourself by feeling as if you are some exiled child of God, you are in exile no more. You've been brought in. You're in the family There is now no condemnation. Now on the other side, for those of us that would think that that means free reign of sin, well, no, he did all that so that now we can obey. He did all that so that now we can do the things that the law requires, like loving others, being kind, being just, so that we don't have to be those old sinful people and be reflections of the world anymore, so that we can be reflections of God. We don't obey so that we could belong into God's household. We have been brought into God's household so now we can obey. That's what Paul's trying to tell us here. The good news is there is now no condemnation, but the good news is you can also obey. Twofold good news. You have a different transformed life now. He gets into this distinction between life lived on our own strength and in the flesh and life lived in the spirit in the next several verses in verses five through eight for paul living by the spirit is the key to living an obedient and righteous life now on the one hand while i want everybody in here to feel freedom from condemnation to not walk out of here feeling like they're condemned alienated sinners from god anymore On the other hand, I don't want that to be a form of complacency because that freedom goes so much deeper. That freedom allows you to do so much more. There's joy to be had living by the Spirit, not living by the flesh. For anyone that's just complacent with, I'm no longer condemned, and that's it, you've missed the whole story of the gospel. The end of the gospel is not just so that you won't be judged. The end of the gospel is that you will be transformed. The, the goal of the gospel is not just so that you won't go to hell. The goal of the gospel is so that now you may bear the image of God like you should. So anyone that's just saying, I've been saved from hell, there is now no condemnation, that's good enough for me. You're missing out on all that God has done for you. There's so much more to it. 
Before we dive in, I think it's important to ask the question, what does Paul mean by flesh? Paul uses this word flesh in a number of ways. We talk about that. You know, I was, I was just living by the flesh or thinking in the flesh or I was just, I was living in a fleshly way. Um, but we rarely know what flesh means, right? Because flesh has different connotations, different denotations. It can mean actual skin. Sarcos can mean actual skin at some points. Flesh can be a metaphor for sin, However, I think whenever Paul matches this walking in the flesh, matches walking with flesh, he seems to be describing actions that are man-centric or self-sourced. So it means to be dependent on your own willpower, your own wisdom, your own abilities, your own resolve or strength. That's to be walking in the flesh, is to be living like you're self-sufficient, right? You're, you have everything you need to do what you should. That's what it means to be living in the flesh. So the Texan doctrine of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps, that's the epitome of living in the flesh. So hope you don't believe that. That's walking in the flesh. Pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps is all. You hear the self in it all, right? Your, 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 your own, own, own. As much as we love saying that to people, oh my goodness, what an anti-gospel we live in. That is self-sufficient doctrine living by the flesh. And we apply that all the time, don't we? Especially to our sin. You see, flesh asks the question, what can I do? Flesh asks the question, what can I do? Living in the Spirit asks the question, what can God do in me? Flesh looks at sin and says, I just need to fill in the blank, and then I'll be free from this sin. Okay, so... What does pulling up the, yourself by your bootstraps mean to you in, in a sinful, spiritual context? Well, I just need to shut my mouth more. Well, you won't. I just need to take breathing treatments. It's not going to help. Sighing is still a way of expressing anger. Well, I just need to shut off the phone. Okay, that's fine. You can not live with technology, and lust will still be a problem. Well, I just need to move to a community where everybody just is concerned about my weakness and they're going to dress accordingly. Okay, that's still not going to help you. That's still not going to help you. Anything you try to do, anytime you say, I desperately just need to, and then fill in the blank, you're living in the flesh. Spirit, living by the Spirit when it comes to sin, says this, I desperately need God to keep me from X, Y, and Z. If he doesn't deliver me, then I'm toast. My friends, what hope do I have of not cheating on my wife this week? Well, I just, I just need to stay in my office where there's a window, right? I just need to shun all the females in the church. I just need to do what? And what of those things have helped other people not cheat on their wives? The fact of the matter is anything you do by itself is not sufficient. Rules are great. Strategies are great. Keep them. But by themselves, they will not deliver you from sin. They just won't. All the rigid rules that we have, we have, we have the, the guys who wrote books on those rigid rules that are deconstructing their faith at the moment. The rules by themselves will not help you. 
Here's the reality. If I'm not going to cheat on my wife this week, I am in desperate need for the Spirit of God to keep me free from sin. Amen or not? If you're not going to lose your temper with your wife this week, you're in desperate need for the Spirit. If you're not going to pop off and alienate a whole bunch of friends this week, if you're not going to live in this hormonal roller coaster where you leave, leave a wake of bodies, you desperately need the Spirit this week. To live free from your judgmentalism, your self-justification, for your overcriticalness, to live free from these kinds of sins that do damn people to hell, you desperately need the Spirit this week. So if you're someone just going, okay, what do I need to do to better my walk with the Lord? If you're asking that question, you're already off on the wrong, wrong footstep. You're, you're, you're off on the wrong step. Walking in the Spirit comes with this utter, unquestionable dependence upon God. Freedom from addiction. Freedom from habits. Freedom from sins. You can read self-help books that get you on a track and try to set you on a trajectory, and yet you will always veer from the trajectory without the Spirit's help. You are in desperate need of the Spirit, and anyone not willing to admit that is living in a prideful arrogance that's keeping them blind to the reality of how we live righteously. When it comes to God, you cannot pull yourself up from by your bootstraps. You don't even have boots. You're helpless. Your anger, approach it this week. I guarantee I'll put my paycheck down in it. You might go for a few days by sheer resolve. You will lose. Your resolve's not enough. Your strategy's not enough. Your resolutions aren't enough. Your regulations aren't enough. Your rules aren't enough. Your modesty's not enough. Your phone, your phone habits are not enough. Whatever it is, you simply will not have enough in and of yourself. You must Go in dependence to the Spirit. God, help me. You didn't defeat sin on the cross. You can't defeat now. You can't defeat the sin now in your life. Not by yourself. My friends, this is a tough message because I know for myself, I like rules. I like thinking that the window on my office door is going to keep me out of idolatry or immorality. I like thinking covenant eyes is enough and that I'm going to stay morally pure because I have the security of covenant eyes on my computer. I love thinking that I might not lose my, temp- my temper with my wife this week because I've learned a few different breathing techniques over the weekend. I like thinking that I might not be a bad example to my kids because I'm just going to push my way through it and smile no matter what. You know, it's better for us to be broken people who are broken in and of ourselves and realize the perfections and the excellencies of the Spirit rather than to insist on our own willpower and abilities. Have you ever wondered why you're so tired? You see, the Spirit of God never gets tired. The Spirit of God is never exhausted. Why is it that when I live in this life trying, 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 trying hard to be a Christian, why is it I feel so exhausted? Have I ever stopped to ask, maybe I'm living it? 
the wrong way? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm so focused on what I'm trying to do and not focused on what God can do and is doing. Maybe I'm not coming with the proper dependence upon the Lord. You see, Paul tells the Galatian Christians the same thing. We all have, this is a Christian tendency for us to do. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, none of us would say that our salvation was because of what we did, right? None of us, none of us would be that arrogant to say that, right? Hopefully. Salvation was because of what Jesus did on the cross. Now have we somehow dipped into the thinking that sanctification is our work. God did his work on the cross. Now it's our job. It's up to us. My friends, it's never up to you. If it's ever up to you, you're lost and hopeless. It's up to the Spirit of God working inside of you. Not your willpower, not your resolve, not your strength. And listen to the danger of living according to these things. For those who live according to the flesh, for those who think that their willpower is enough, for them, for those that think they can pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, for those who think that they can live in their own strength and power and resolve or resolutions and rules or whatever else, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is what? Death. If I trust in my own willpower, my own strength and my own resolve, what can I expect to get from that? Death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You know, if God takes the control of it and I come to him in dependence, I don't get death because God's the God of life. He can overpower my sin when I can't. For the mind that is set on flesh is hostile to God. You see, as much as we get all these strict religious rule makers and rule followers, the irony is, let's just say that we have this real legalistic regulation and we make our long list of rules of things that we need to all do to be holy people. Let's just say we were able to publish that out. You know what the irony is? Is it's still a system void of God. That's the irony of it all. It's still a system that is absolutely void of what God can do and what God has done. It's still focused on ourselves. And until we get to a system where we're focused on God and not on self, can we ever please God? Those who live on the flesh, the the, the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is. Cannot. For those who are in flesh cannot please God. Is there anyone here trying really hard to live a life pleasing to God? Is there anyone here making rules and regulations? And you just think, okay, if I want to please God, I've got to do all these things. The flesh will never get you there. Your willpower, your strength, your own resolve, your gut, your grit, none of it is going to get you there. Only those who are weak and are dependently weak upon the Spirit are the ones that please God. That's the irony of the great reversal. The strong go 
go away. The strong get sent away. The weak are accepted. The weak find life. So what can I do versus what will God do? Fleshly mind obsessed with self, the mind of the spirit transfixed by God, transfixed by what God can do. Simply impossible. So if you're asking this question, when it comes to your sin, whatever your vice may be, whatever it is, your judgmentalism, your pride, your pornography, your uh, you know, addiction to politics, whatever it is, whatever that vice is, if you say, well, I just need to, whatever, you're not going to get freedom from those things. Living in the flesh is going to lead to striving. I just need to work harder. I just need to do better. I just need to be more self All that's rubbish, trash. It's not going to get you there. Living by the Spirit is how we live in our belonging to God, in our union with God. Paul writes, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. At the heart of this beautiful passage is union with Christ. You live by the flesh. You live by your own willpower. You live by yourself. You live alone. You live by the Spirit. You live in union with Christ. Alienation is no, not there. You're not separated from God. You live in union. Not only do you live in union, you belong to Him. You are His You are his child, his people. And what's even more, even though that you are dying and soon to be dead because of your sin, because of your union with Christ through the Spirit, God promises a resurrection like Jesus's. Isn't it amazing? At the beginning of this text, Paul said that Jesus became like us, took on the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? So that we could become like him in life. So that we can have his resurrection. So that we can have union with him. My friends, if, if anything, Paul's holding up these two things. You know, as, as glittery as the flesh may look. It may, it may seem tempting to work and will your way into holiness. Paul says, look at everything that gets you. Nothing. Death. Uh, hostility with God, lack of peace with God, cannot please God, and certainly is not the path of union with the Lord. The Spirit, on the other hand, those things that are outside of yourself, His will, His power, His strength, those things can get you the beautiful rewards of union with Christ. So why do we still want to live by our own gut and grit anyway? If we know that it gets us that, When are we going to ever be people that are just broken and say, you know what, I have nothing in and of myself. My spirituality was like my golf game yesterday. If someone better than me was not going to carry the team, we were just going to lose terribly. We weren't going to get past hole one. I couldn't even hit the ball in hole one. Hit the ball and it hooked there. If If we'd have been chasing the ball, I mean, we'd still be there this morning trying to get the ball to the hole. I came to realize real quickly, there's nothing in me that can play this game. (laughs) 
There's nothing in me that can play this game. I had to swallow the humble pill to realize that someone better had to play the game for me. My friends, our spiritual, in our spirituality, we are broken like that. We have nothing in us. We can't play the game. We can't make the shot. We need the Spirit of God to bring us what we cannot bring ourselves. Now, on all, the, all accounts, the Spirit does what the law can never do, meets those righteous requirements. So what's the point? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put the death, the deeds of the body, you will live. We live in debt to the flesh when we think that it's up to us to obey God. We burden ourselves with all those rules that we talked about. We try to stem the tide of temptation by our own regulations. And yet, the deeds of the body will never die that way. It must be done by the Spirit. If you do this by the Spirit, if you fight your sin by the Spirit, then you will live. Then you will have the victory over sin. So, Anyone asking the question, how do I get myself free from sin? Well, you can't get yourself free from sin. How are you freed from sin is a better question. By dependence on the Lord. How do you love your wife? Have you ever thought about coming at the beginning of the week and just saying, Lord, I desperately need you to love my wife. I need you to help me love my wife. To be a friend. To be holy. To be committed to others. To love others. To come to him with that kind of dependence. You see, sometimes when it comes to application in a sermon, it's not so much what can you do. It's just reminding you of what he has done and can do. I don't have a long list of applications from this because Paul's point is to try to stop getting you to ask, what can you do more? The only answer is to depend, to trust. To throw yourself on the mercy of God through his spirit the only way you're going to be free. We return now just to August to Augustine and and we'll conclude with this. We left Augustine in his helpless sexual sin asking that question, who is going to set my wretched self free from the body that was death? Well, he later answers his own question. The whole of my hope, everything about my hope is only in your powerfully great mercy. Listen to what he says. Grant what you command. And command what you wish. You command me to be self-restrained. Give what you command. And command what you wish. Romans 8 comes to the same conclusion. The law tells us what God has commanded, but it cannot grant it, can it? The law tells us to be loving, just, kind, merciful, sexually pure, relationally sacrificial, and yet the law cannot give us any of those things. However, the Spirit... Not only makes known God's commands, but it actually grants them. God, you want me to be sexually pure this week? Then give it. Give the sexual purity I need. I don't have it. I won't render it. I won't be able to bear fruit in it. God, you want me not to be prideful this week? Give humility. God, you want me to be loving this week? Give the love. Outpour it from your triune self to me. Let it overflow to me because outside of myself, my cup is empty. I have nothing. It must come from you. My friends, what is wrong with self-righteous churches today? 
What is wrong with self-righteous Christians today? What is wrong with all the angry, self-centered, self-sufficient people today? It is a lack of living in dependence on God. My friends, if we want a revival here, we can't make it. It must come from the Lord, and it will only come through dependence on God. How do you know somebody's spiritually alive? How do you know someone's living spiritually healthy and mature? Well, they stop talking about themselves for one thing and stop looking and start looking to the Lord. As a pastor, I'm over, I'm beating the point, as they say, beating a dead horse. But I have a huge heart for God's people to learn that the answer to holiness is not in rigid law and rules, but in spirit wrought righteousness as they depend on him. To see more people with tear-stained eyes when they think about themselves and less upturned noses. To see people walk in and just to freely confess, yeah, you think you did bad this week, and I wrecked it. But there's now no condemnation. You mind praying for me so that I can live in dependence and not do that again? How, how many people would find, find church invigorating if that happened? You know, we come to church thinking that we have to live in such a way so that we can upturn our nose without being hypocritical. Well, we just stop focusing on the upturned noses. And we start focusing on the brokenness that's in us. The biggest sinner in the room It's me. You might think it's you. It's me. And I hope you think the same about yourself. Because we all need grace. And it's only by the Lord that we do it. My friends, the world mocks the gospel because we have a bootstraps type gospel where we tell people to pull themselves up by bootstraps. We have something better than bootstraps. We have a God who pulls us up. We have a God who pulls us up. And not by the bootstraps, but by the heart. Through his own spirit. I pray that you feel free from condemnation. I pray that you feel free to obey God. I pray that you feel free to hear the good news that in your brokenness, the spirit is perfect. Let's pray. Father God, in this really disastrously communicated sermon, Father, I pray that you will work what only your spirit can do, that you will call people to yourself and to dependence upon you. Father, I pray if anyone here is struggling with sin, whether secretly or openly, that before they begin making a list of things they need to do better, that they will humble their hearts and throw themselves on you. It's not a let go and let God kind of theology, but it is, Lord, a theology that tells us that we can do nothing in and of ourselves. We are void and empty of righteousness. So Father, as a pastor and as an individual Christian, I pray not only for this church, but I pray for myself that you will grant what you command and command what you wish. Father, if you command us but don't grant it, we can't obey it. But if you command it and grant it, we will obey it. Grant what you command. And command what you wish. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.